When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you recording live to the increasingly unuseful metaphor of tape. Uh, <laughs> live to a series of tubes. Live to the cloud, I guess, maybe, mm. uh, on Thursday, June 24th. Um, we're going to do half the show, kind of a normal show of talking about what's going on in the world. And then the back half of the show, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, um, which came out. And I think it's having a bit of a moment. It's going to be made into a TV show and other things going on. So uh, a prescient time to talk about that. Rebecca, how are you? I'm good. We're having a little summer, like not quite cold snap, but it was cooler than 60 degrees when I woke up this morning in wow, Virginia, nice. which is lovely. Um, and it's been a nice, it has been a nice week. I am reading a digital galley of the new oral biography of Anthony mm. Bourdain that his longtime assistant, Lori Wooliver, put together, which when you mentioned world travel or world traveler, I can't remember what the title is of the world travel, travel. book, world travel. Um, when we were doing our you know, sort of honorable mentions for faves of the year so far, it reminded me that this was coming out and that I had seen it on Edelweiss. So I, you know, clicked a few buttons and made my way there. And it is wonderful. Oh, good. She, yeah, she interviewed like a hundred people from across Bourdain's life, like folks who were friends of his when he was a kid, folks who worked with him in restaurants before he got famous, his first wife, Nancy, his second wife, Otavia, his mother, his brother, like all sorts of folks. Eric Repair is in there and it moves up from around like late high school age all the way through his career. And I am just where he's like really starting to get super famous. Mm. And it's, I love an oral history. Um, I've never read an oral history of a person, an oral biography like this. That's <laughs> right. Like, Weird. Have you, have you seen anything like that? Well, I guess. What do we talk about when we talk about oral histories, right? <laughs> I mean, the form as we know them goes back to, you know, WPA administration days of talking to, I think it was like, ex-slaves, black sharecroppers of going I around and uh, Alan Lomax recording. I think this is where, so something be, beyond a historian's biography um, and just talking to folks. I think this is, again, I could be wrong about this. I'll try to make some notes for next time. So the oral history being you're just listening and recording to people talking. You're not, you're not yeah. doing interviews. You're not doing archival work. It's just that. So of a person no is your memory of like the oral history as an internet thing is a relatively recent phenomenon and it often covers subjects that don't merit probably a yes. full book like an oral history of this one episode of the west wing or this one <laughs> exactly. kind of like c-list movie right um, an oral that people history still have of an empire records for. yeah great example yeah, yeah. but as a person and i don't know no 
And, you know, usually I guess it's because either there's a lot of historical records about the person if you're just going to go straight biography, or maybe they've written an autobiography and there's a lot of, you know, personal stuff that's on the page and that's already available to people. But, you know, Wooliver doesn't write, at least not in the galley version, any sort of deep intro about how she arrived at doing this book or using this format. But it's a way of constructing Bourdain's life told through the people who were closest to him at at various points. And I am finding it to be what I was hoping it would be. And it is that sort of classic oral history setup where it's like, here's a paragraph of his mother talking. And as she's tapering off his brother, who, you know, either was also in the room or who had also discussed the same topic like his quote comes in and it just moves between them and there's no uh narrative thread provided by Wooliver from the outside and but she's done a lovely job putting things in order and, and telling the story and I was like this is it's just a fascinating way to learn about a person that so many of us were fascinated by and we got to see Bourdain as he presented himself but seeing him now through the lens and it's you know varied and contains multitudes as all of us do um, but right. seeing him through the lens of those people and folks talking about here's a way that he was different than what you would see on TV or here's what's surprising or like here was a time that he was kind of a jerk to me. Like it's a very human and I think robust portrait of a person. And I'm, I'm like fascinated by it. It's made me think about who else would I want this kind of biography of. And to me, it is more interesting and engaging as a reader than a straight you know, historically researched biography would be. So I'm like, I'm deep in that land right now. I'm just thinking about how much I liked Tony Bourdain. It's a different kind of work, right? Than sort of the Robert Cairo, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. than the Robert Cairo version, but even something like even a sports journalist writing a book about the 96 Bulls, as opposed to the Michael Jordan Bulls documentary, which is essentially an oral history, right? That we were, mm-hmm. that was one of our pandemic faves. I think we'll have <laughs> p- pandemic yes. phase memories which was essentially organizing interviews. That's an oral biography of the Bulls. There wasn't much interstitial, if any, interstitial sort of investigative reporting. They had all this footage, and they had mm-hmm. access to all these people. Let let him, let Scottie Pippen cook for a few minutes about how mad he was about not, you know, like, do that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think it has, its, it has its place, certainly. I think it's probably more entertaining than a more straight sure. history. It's probably a lot less work, so you can turn something around. I'm not saying it's not a lot of work, but it's different than... You know, Bourdain's junior high transcripts, and here's an interview with his therapist, <laughs> and here's his contract, and, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's different. So I think it's, from a reader's point of view, and for someone like Tony Bourdain and our particular fandom, for lack of a better term of it, it is a lot of the document one. And I was thinking about it in terms of, um, did you watch the Friends reunion thing on HBO? I did, did I did. Yeah, did you? I, I did, and I found myself. I just want to let tell, let them tell stories about. I don't need the fashion mm-hmm. show and the game or whatever. The thing I want is the people who were there. I want the primary sources. They're alive. I mean, that's the other thing about history is sometimes you don't you can't do an oral biography because people dead. Um, but in this case, what else do you want? Especially when it's personality driven. I think that's the thing you're kind of onto with yeah. Bourdain is because like Tony, for example, we know her personality a little bit, but if given a choice between a Tony Morrison oral biography and say. You know, a more conventional literary biography. I, frankly, I would have liked both, but if I had to pick one, <laughs> I want the totemic work that stands as a mm-hmm. reference. But if I'm talking about George Clooney, you know, kind of a personality, someone I like in the world, Michael B. Jordan, you know, mm-hmm. Zendaya, 
do I need the, I don't need the 800 page thing, but you like the personality, like the person and the person themselves is entertaining and interesting. Bourdain's a raconteur. He does wild stuff. So, so probably Robert, K- an oral history of Robert Cairo is not what you want, but a history of Robert Cairo <laughs> right. is probably more interesting. I, you mean, know, I don't know. I just somebody find it, might I, I want that. I just don't. I think the documentary TV example is incredibly helpful in my sorting out how I'm thinking about this and responding to it, because it does, the experience of reading this does feel very similar to seeing Michael Jordan talking about himself, but also then seeing Scottie Pippen talk about it and then seeing their coaches talk about it and then seeing like one of his relatives talk about things. And I can imagine that this could have been a similar kind of documentary project where it's all these folks sitting in their living rooms, sharing their memories of Bourdain rather than it ending up in print. And that's exactly what it feels like in the reading of it, Um, Mm -hmm. that it's it's super interesting to get all these different perspectives. And, you know, you get like their his brother sort of talking smack about like their mom and some of the ways that Anthony Bourdain interacted with their mom or like long running conflicts. And then a page later, there's their mom talking about that same thing, but Ooh. not knowing that it was a thing that drove him crazy. <laughs> like she was a longtime copy editor for the New York times and, you know, spoke fluent French and apparently once called Bourdain's publisher to correct some like grammatical mistakes in one of his books. It reminds me of that scene in the Jordan documentary of some, I think it was Gary Payton saying he could guard Jordan, but they had yeah. that on an iPad and they gave it to Jordan. Like, I want that. I want that move. You know? I want exactly. something like that in the book form. But, uh, since we had mentioned, you know, you had mentioned world travel last week and we've talked a lot about our shared appreciation for Bourdain's work on this show, I wanted to toss that out. The book doesn't come out until September, so I'm yeah. sorry for mentioning it this far in advance. But if you are also a Tony Bourdain fan, I would sincerely recommend you know, pre-ordering or requesting your library copy of Bourdain, an oral biography by Lori Wolliver. It's wonderful. I don't want to tell people how to do their job, but here we go. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I'm assuming a lot of this was probably email correspondence. I don't know. Like, are these transcribed uh, interviews, whatever, but we have the technology now. Get people on the phone, record it. Your audiobook's ready to go. You're yeah. just splicing it together. How am I, it, like that's the document you want. You don't you want not oh, just I mean the text is fine, check. but the actual audio of these people saying the words is all would be awesome. Uh, it anyway, reads that's... very conversationally, so I suspect these are actual conversations that she had. Um or a mix, I guess is possible. Right. Yeah. But I wonder what the audiobook is. I will have to check. Cuz okay. if it is the spliced together audio that would be fascinating. And if it's not, it should be. So Absolutely. Uh, we did a little more on that than we thought, but that's fine. But we do need to take a sponsor break before getting into the rest. I thought we would check in on sales for some of our summer mm. preview draft picks. Um, and I, I okay. should say, this is not a stacked deck. I, I did not select this because <laughs> it would somehow vindicate my unjust loss. Um, in <laughs> that was going to be my first question. <laughs> well, the thing that struck me actually dings my basket um, show title uh, mm-hmm. more more than anything, and that's what got me thinking about it. So I'm just going to run through some of our picks that is, that are appearing on the list now. Not everything is out yet because we're doing the full summer, um, and then some things that did appear. I'm looking in Publishers Weekly, and they only give you the top 20 in, in the major categories for us. So it's going to be limited, but I think it's still illustrative of what we're doing here. So right now on the hardcover front list fiction list, which a lot of ours, that would be where they would go. The number one ranked book of our list is number seven overall, and it was number six last week. I'm sorry, pardon me. I got that wrong. 
Um, it's number five this week, and it was number two last week, and I believe it debuted oh. last week. And it's Malibu Rising, Taylor Jenkins yes. Reid debut novel. What a showing for her first book. I think that's a wonderful effort. <laughs> I mean, it's a really incredible way to debut. <laughs> um, with 15,844 copies. Again, this is BookScan, and we do not have time to do an hour on what BookScan is or isn't, but we'll use it as, as indicative now. Um, the top four, Clinton Patterson, Elon Hildenbrand, John Grisham, and Laura Dave. Laura Dave, the last thing he told me was... Uh, um, an Amazon book club pick thriller. Oh, so that's showing a little muscle there. There's a, I'm hearing podcast ads for it on like random shows. I listen to yeah. They're They're doing some marketing for that one. Um, disclosure. I think we did some ads of our own. Oh, ours okay, the, cool. The wider book riot family. Um, as we, as we, pre- do you want to hear all of the top 20 or just the ones or, or are there notable ones? What, what, what are you interested in here, Rebecca? Now that oh, I have, I want to hear the ones that are, f- the ones that are from our yeah. draft. Okay, so so we'll go through, and, yeah, and I'll throw in a couple of interesting ones along the way. Um, the next on our list on the hardcover front lection, front, front list fiction, <laughs> that's not how you say that word, though it feels like that maybe should be a word for various things. Uh, Project Hail Mary, Andy Weir, number yes. nine overall, number seven last week, and again, we're several weeks after. You know, that, that's the hard thing to gauge about these, is some of these things have been out for a while, so the longer it's been since they've re- released... And the higher up the ranking they go, that's a that's a bigger sign of strength, right? That you've been out for a while and still doing here. So that one's pretty interesting. Ten thousand nine hundred and twenty nine copies. This wasn't on our. I don't think we picked this. I can't remember. We talked. Oh, oh no, we picked that. I'm, no, I'm sorry. The yeah. next one. The next one. The four okay. wins by Kristen Hanna. Did one of us pick this, or was no. that before? It was out before June, I think. Um, ten number ten last week. Number nine. Remember a million hard copy print run i don't know enough about the shape of these things over time but at first blush do i expect it to be doing better than selling ten thousand copies a week right now if it had a million mm. print run i don't know yeah i don't know either um the other black girl the one we talked about before we did not pick it for our summer basket um this week number 12 last week number eight um okay. that's it on the top 20 fiction for us Nonfiction. Did I pick the Bomber Mafia? I can't remember now. I think that was I out don't before Father's Day. Think so. Yeah. Um, Wait, which is that the Glad the Gladwell esque situation? Maybe yeah. you did pick it. You might have. I might have picked it. I wish I would have. It's number seven. It's a good this thing week. we keep such no, detail yeah, I know. Here. People can remind us. It's more interesting than anything else. <laughs> Nothing else. Though notably, right. World Travels, number 14, Crying in H Mart, 15, cast. Isabel Wilkerson, oh. still in hardcover, still racking up sales. Glad Good to see that. Good for her. I just reread that because I had a deep sense that I didn't possibly absorb everything I wanted to from oh, did it you? when I read it mm-hmm. in 2020. Yeah, I just reread it yeah. like last month. And whew, that's, folks, if you think about the kinds of things that we think about on this show and the kinds of stuff that Book Right cares about and you're thinking about how to better understand race and what we're dealing with yeah. like cast I, I think is so essential I want to shout out a couple of things that we've talked about before they didn't make it into either of our picks for last year or books of the year or anything else like that but they continue to sell Invisible Life of Addie LaRue which is a September 2020 mm-hmm. release V.E. Schwab number 15 on hardcover front list fiction and then the Invisible Library talk about a talk about a stayer 
Um, that is, or the Midnight Library. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting the Midnight mm-hmm. Library. That's Matt Haig. That also came out last year. That's number seven on front list fiction. And that book has like 70,000 reviews on Amazon. Yeah. Look, um, if you put library in the title and the book is kind of magical, you're going to do fine. And by all accounts, but there's so well many. Written. I feel like there's so many. I don't know. Maybe it's the exception that proves it's the not, rule. I don't know. You, you might be right. It's not like a right. pass to the bestsellers list, but I do think no. it's an automatic leg up. Yeah. You know, here's another one I found interesting. And we haven't talked about John Green in a while. Um, but his new book is called The Anthropocene Reviewed. It's a nonfiction title. And I think it's vignette kind of chapters around, you know, human things. And all of them are signed right now. All the first editions are signed, which oh, is a wild undertaking. 7,000 copies sold last week. Number 12, number six last week feels like the John Green thing in popular mainstream book culture for whatever reason, isn't what it was. Um, right after, I guess, that time between Fault in Our Stars being published and the movie coming out felt like the apex of John Green as a cultural voice seems to have been supplanted. I don't know yeah. by what, but is not is not on the firmament like it once was. He once that's was. interesting. I think it's a product of like where we are in generational shifts in media, like in the yeah. media landscape. I was thinking about this last week that which is maybe the first time I've thought about John Green <laughs> in mm-hmm. like five years. But I, it's, I think many of his fans are sort of the younger millennials and older like Gen Z crowd. And he's, he's sort of, you know, he, we're all aging, but like those fans are aging out of the like spinning central core of what yeah. dis- what defines cool what's cool and what everybody's into on the internet like i'm certainly aged out of it so are you so it's not like we're casting judgment on mm-hmm. on that being a thing that happens but i think that that's a, it's a product of that it's hard to stay relevant when so much interest is driven by the internet and social media and by the younger generations of folks in those spaces. And I think, I think John Green's fans are staying with him and are aging up with him, but I don't know that he's getting, and I could be completely wrong about this. I have not gone like down a YouTube thing to see what the subscribership patterns to his vlogs have been or anything like that. But it, my best guess is that that is what's happening, that it's not like new kids coming up onto the internet or finding their way to John Green now. They're finding their way to somebody else. And I think that's just true of, of most, if not yeah. all, popular culture, right? Like Pearl Jam isn't the 14-year-old Mies right. band anymore. It's the 43-year-old right. Mies band. No, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that nope. if you make hay in the spring, it's hard to keep it all the way into the summer and fall of people's lives as they go on. Totally. Yeah. I listened to a two hour podcast about counting crows last week, but I don't think there are 22 year olds doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure there are that many, um, 30 <laughs> year olds doing that right now. No shade in Everglade. Uh, Mark, no uh, shade uh, trade paperback front list. Number one, overall, where the crawdads sing by one, uh, daily Owens ever heard of it. Um, 20,000 units. <laughs> throw a party the day that that comes off the list. Freed E.L. James, number two. Still, still, interestingly, publishing directly to paperback. Famously, um, I, I don't know my history of front list paperback releases, new releases, but that was an interesting one. And they've continued, even though they could probably sell in hardcover for twenty seven ninety nine at this point, they've chosen not yeah. to. And there's that confounding thing of that romance doesn't usually That's come right. out 
in hardcover, but they're doing some hardcovers now for some of the like crossover publications. But yeah, I mean, I think they totally could sell some $27 copies of E.L. James, but they're probably doing more volume right at the start because it's paperback. And the, uh, the last one that was in our baskets, One Last Thought by Casey McQuiston, again, on that romance paperback mm-hmm. kind of um, established prior. Number eight overall, down from number two last week, which I think was its debut week. can't remember now. Um, 10,662 copies. Interestingly, Casey McQuiston right now is selling as many copies per week as Kristen Hanna is, just oh, to wow. give you some context for the four wins. Again, paperback hasn't been out quite as long. But I think that's a good showing from McQuiston. Um, that's great. Notable absences on things that we had, mm. uh, you know, we had some print run information for. Somebody's Daughter was on the chart last week for its debut. It fell off the hardcover front list nonfiction. Um, saw some chatter about a few Tech Talk viral hits in the literary oh. fiction world. One is, um, interestingly, Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Mm. Um Apparently, there's a crying on TikTok over a book gets other people to pick. No, it, it's a thing. I don't. I, no, no. You know, I think like a month ago, I put a link into our agenda that was like the kids are crying on TikTok, right. and we didn't get to it. But yes, I, mm-hmm. but it's it is interesting that we. So that would be a paperback backlist, right? And that's not covered here. Mm-hmm. You could go find it if you had a bookscan account. But I think as social media and as these backlist long tails get even longer, there's more chance for something to bubble up organically like that. I really like a, a backlist. Now again, it could be all Dale Carnegie. And um, Da Vinci Codes. I'm not sure how you would do it, but could we get like, I don't know, is there other way to capture that? Um, David? Well, there's, I think there's an Eowyn Kofer book or E.K. Johnson. I can't remember mm-hmm. that also kind of have been making their rounds on there. So that, that's, I thought those were notable. Um, I don't think there's anything, because our number one, two, I think all of our kind of top picks were in there. Um, can you think of anything that we were high on in terms of sales that, oh. we, that we haven't? talked about that didn't well the daniel henderson just came out this week i think yeah. so hard to know people i think that that's ashley ford and daniel henderson have a problem in this and we talked about this on the show it's like people don't yeah. know who those people are outside of the world of books really um and so these are the most mainstream mainstream t- not that they couldn't have a crop this happens from time to time i think crying in h mart actually is a good example um, it's been out mm-hmm. for a little while, and we can talk about yeah, why that might be. True. I think in a lot of ways, it has a lot of it has a lot of the same underlying DNA as something like somebody's daughter. But maybe we'll talk about that, about that when we get to it. Yeah, and I wonder about somebody's daughter falling off the bestseller list might be a product of having had a really big pre order campaign or a very successful yeah. pre order campaign that pre orders get counted on the day that the book comes out they're included in the first week of release for the bestseller list and from what i've seen i follow ashley on instagram i follow a lot of folks who were talking about how excited they were for the book to come out i think there was a i'm i'm pretty confident that there were a lot of copies of that book pre-ordered <laughs> that would have contributed to bestseller list the week of release and and to hanging out there and yeah i think it's it's challenging danielle henderson has been doing all kinds of interesting yeah. work but her name right. is much less known and most recently she's been working 
on in TV and is a writer. I think she is a showrunner currently for a show that she's working on. Um, so much less well known. But I did see because I follow Elizabeth Gilbert as well. And she does like a monthly book club thing on Instagram that Elizabeth Gilbert's current book club selection is The Ugly mm. Cry by Danielle Henderson. So at some point, I'm actually going to watch an entire mm. Instagram live. Wow, we are really, we're really getting younger <laughs> here as we sit on the podcast. Well, I mean, I, the, I mean, she says right, at two o'clock right, on a yeah. Thursday we'll afternoon. We'll check that with the yeah. six years. See how we did. Um, I guess the only other pre-orders, is, it's always unknown. Which books have more or less pre-orders, I think, is not something is generally known unless you are looking at BookScan and it, as working for an imprint, right? Like what percentage of sales? Because the counter that would be Oprah's selection of somebody's daughter, of course, comes after its public publication mm. date. So That's there true. could be another weight on the other side of the scale. Um, like I said, I think the book's really good. I was surprised it had the print run it did. Mm-hmm. So I'm not like, I don't want to suggest I'm, it's underperforming or something like that relative to my expectation of it. Probably something that'll have heat over time and it become part of Ashley's backlist as she continues to write and publish and other things like that. So I, yeah. I I'm not giving up the ghost on I that, think one that one's in particular. I think that that's a memoir we're going to talk about for a long time as being representative of a kind of, I hope, paradigm shift in the ways that personal stories yeah. like that get told. I can totally see it being taught in like MFA. The other programs. strange, strange, new um, arrival on the scene in these charts, which I've been looking at, you know, I've been subscribed to Publishers Weekly release since we started the show a little bit before, in the trade pu- pu- paperback frontless section, manga. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six out of the top 20 trade paperback front list books are manga titles, which five years ago, you maybe would see a graphic novel from time to time, maybe a new volume of, um, Mm -hmm. I don't even think, you know, Paper Girls or something. Like I'm trying to think of what the most popular ones were uh, even five years ago. Lumber James, a new Lumber James or something would make it from time to time. Saga, Saga. another good one. Again, those were volumes, but we've seen on the site, the manga attention is way different than it used to be. Be interesting to see how long it lasts. Would you like to hear the number um, one, two, three, four, and five and six uh, children's front list fictions? Dave Pilkey, Kenny, Pilkey, Pilkey, <laughs> Kenny. Unbelievable stuff. <laughs> okay. Six of Crows, Bardugo, number 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Rule of Wolves, number 20, Bardugo. I think it's interesting. Oh, wow. I guess those are front list. I'd love to know how those are selling compared to Shadow and Bone. The only reason is Shadow and Bone, I would have to imagine it's outselling Six of Crows right now, but because we don't have a front list or a back list fiction list, we don't, well, unless, again, unless you know, um, you know. Well, and we also don't really know how much a Netflix series drives book sales, except in cases where the book was previously not really selling at all and like like the witcher right. and then it became a big thing so i don't know like i really don't have a sense of has everybody who's going to read shadow and bone read it and now they're just watching it on netflix or like are there folks watching on netflix who aren't going to pick up the book is it not really moving mm. the dial in that respect i have no i have no idea i also haven't read any of the bardugos so i can't weigh in on you know what i think six of crows and rule of there. wolves are better than the 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 problem with well the problem Bardugo's doing fine. The first Shadow and Bone book is the weakest <laughs> of all the five because there's the trilogy and the duology, and there's some other stuff that I haven't got to. Wait, well, these are parallel. Oh, they're, yeah, par- they're parallel. <laughs> six of- anyway, it doesn't. And the show mixes them up. It's kind of a. Con- I understand why they didn't. I think it's ultimately successful. 
But Shadow and Bone is not where I'd have people start. If you want to start the Bardugo train, even related to or not related to the, the show, start with Six of Crows. I think that's the, the best read, the best point of entry. Eric oh, Carl, interesting. number three on children's picture books. Very Hungry Caterpillar, Very Hungry right. Caterpillar. Number four, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See with Martin and Carl. That's and a, then that's number a 11. There. Oh, number 10. I Love Dad with the Very Hungry Caterpillar. That's some seasonal um, Father's mm. Day pandering <laughs> marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the places oh, you'll n- go number one. still on? Still or have number we crossed one. out number of graduation? It's, okay. it's 10K. It's almost 50% more than the next book, which is The Bench, which is The Duchess of Sussex. Oh, that's English royalty stuff. I don't know what that is. Oh, I mean, I know yes. what it is. I know mm-hmm. enough not to know. Oh, it's the new, yeah, it's the, it's the new book by Meghan Markle that apparently does like reimagine fatherhood. She's in the Duchess way. of that's Sussex, and that's what she goes by? As the, it's, she it's, is. That's, that's, that seems like a marketing mistake. <laughs> it's, it's, she lives in America now. <laughs> it is. I can I can confirm it's Meghan Markle's okay. new book. <laughs> um, weirdly, for children's picture books, we only there's no front list, there's no back list. It is all one under the grand unified theory of how children's books sell. <laughs> so we get weird artifacts of like really knowing nothing about what's new and just what people are nostalgic for. So there's our little trip through midsummer book sales. All right. Well, what I've mainly taken away from this is that I was really right about Malibu Rising, the debut novel <laughs> I mean, from Taylor Jenkins Reid. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to her next two or three novels. I wonder something about a band, you know? Something about a band? Or, oh, maybe yeah. in the 70s. Do something on, be good on like audio, an, probably. A little, uh... <laughs> you know, an, an oral, oral history, history, maybe. Taylor Jenkins Reid's future books. Uh, let's do another sponsor. <laughs> do a few news stories. All right, we went longer on that. So pick pick one, one new story, Rebecca. What, what's the what's the biggest one of the week that you want to talk about? Oh, I mean, we have to do our story right. we don't want to talk about, but that we have to talk about, which is um, that parents in the Lehigh Valley School District of Pennsylvania are suing over lessons being taught about Black Lives Matter. This is part and parcel with the like panic we're seeing from conservatives with the broad misuse of the term critical race theory. And um, I'll include a link to a great Vox explainer. If you're like, why are we talking about critical race theory? Because isn't that a thing from law school? It is, in fact, a thing from the world of law and legal studies and the right has co-opted it. Uh, but kind of part and parcel of this um Maureen and Christopher Brophy are parents uh, from this school, and they are saying in their lawsuit that topics discussed in their children's classrooms, such as systemic racism, white fragility, religion, white privilege, Black Lives Matter, and police brutality are unacceptable and will not be tolerated. They claim that those topics are anti-Christian and that they discriminate against their religion. They filed suit this Monday. Uh, in federal court. And the East Penn School District solicitor responded by saying anybody can file a lawsuit by paying the filing fee. Being successful is something completely different. So pro- that's a- <laughs> may your efforts succeed. We'll take Mark your Fisher. we'll take your fee. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, 
yes. And uh, the, so this started when their 16-year-old son and 15-year-old daughter were assigned to read White Fragility at school last year uh, in 2020. The parents requested to exempt their children from those topics, and their request was denied. So also, like, mad props to whoever in the Lehigh School District was like, no, actually, we think your children should maybe learn about racism. Uh, and the lawsuit maintains that the topics do not coincide with the family's moral compass or conservative religious views and says that they were left, quote, degraded, victimized, embarrassed, and emotionally distressed um, by the decision that these things should be taught and that they feel that they are anti-Christian. And anti -Christian. we're going to see this stuff. We keep seeing this stuff, but I... I understand where the panic is coming from. I understand why this critical race theory branding that the right is doing is you know, working to catch on. And I would, I don't know, refer the brophies back to their Bible and maybe what Jesus would have had to say about systemically harming Suing people. the school district for your 15 and 16-year-old having to read White Fragility is one of the great self-owns in the history of these. It's great in this case, especially, especially that it's white fragility. That's white fragility. It's, it's on par in, in irony. And this, this is not irony. I don't want to say it. It's on par with um, silliness that's bad, but also kind of pleasure-inducing with the pink dildo lady. Right? It's kind of the same. You, you, you're showing what you don't know by doing this thing at all. Um, it's interesting, and this is really one of those cases, too, where there's a cresting wave of interest, I'll put that very neutrally, in critical race theory, especially on the right, as it's trying to make a boogeyman out of something, right? It's, it's, trying, to make, mm -hmm. it's trying to make it almost like communism, an easy buzzword that people can be against, um, though asked to define it, I would gather that 96% of the people who are against it couldn't tell you anything about it at all. And in fact, I read one of the seminal texts of Critical Race Series, or one of the seminal authors, I'm not sure if it's a seminal text because it was an undergraduate book by, um, oh, I forget the guy's name, uh, Delgado, Edward Delgado, called the Rodrigo Chronicles, which is told as, a, I think I've talked about it in the show before, maybe I did, when I did my own Reading Lies episode, mm -hmm. it was one of the seminal books for me, where it's an older professor in dialogue with a younger student, both of, it's a fictionalized thing. It's like a Socratic dialogue kind of a situation where an older professor of law has a precocious young student. And at one point, you know, kind of the student becomes the teacher about the new wave of thinking about race and the law and systemic racism. I defy people of open mind and good intent not to find it very persuasive. Um, those are two important mm. caveats, I think, in these situations, right? <laughs> those with those with ears to listen, to quote my Bible, I think. Um, it's pretty interesting mm -hmm. and very readable, I should say. And I'm sure there are other texts now mm, that's um, that are, are more updated things. But this is one that I still, uh, I don't keep a lot. I don't have a yeah. lot of undergraduate reading on my shelf that's not fiction. And this is one, and I will keep it as long as I have a physical bookshelf. So it's a high, I'm recommending a book as part of this. This is This is the only antidote to this, this sort of garbage that's out there. <laughs> yes. You know, it's this being their response to white fragility being assigned is the book ban 
or book complaint version of like that the first comment on the internet on any piece about racism or sexism yes, proves right. why we need to have pieces about racism and sexism. And it seems like this family are widely aggrieved. They've complained about a teacher's personal social media posts that they felt were offensive and anti-Christian. Uh, the school district defended that teacher saying that they you know, are allowed to speak on matters of public concern in their private lives as long as those statements aren't knowingly false or recklessly made. Um, they've also made some complaints about school conditions um, and online learning conditions during COVID of the last year. So there's a lot going on here. But, you know, our public schools have a duty to teach our children about the history of this country. And this country was undeniably built on stolen labor from black people. And that doesn't mean that we're teaching every little white child, which I've seen this complaint, like, why are you teaching my children that they are racist and you're going to make them feel bad? And you know what? Like, we should all take a moment as those of us who are white to consider what elements of our upbringings would have better served us if they had taught us earlier on. Examine how this benefits you. Examine what racist ideas you may be holding uh, that you haven't identified yet. And also, this is the system. You are not a bad person, probably, but you're in this system that you are inevitably shaped by. Suing the kids' school district is definitely not doing your kids any favors in their social lives in their school district either. And they've... <laughs> I think they've got something else going on at home, Rebecca. I'm just going to throw There's that out there. It's not an excuse. It just feels to me something's like... Something's going on here, yeah. but this is a thing. I think we're just going to continue to see more of this now that the buzzword of critical race theory has caught on. And I agree. I would love to see someone say, like, I will entertain your complaint about this when you can define critical race theory for me. Because um, all I can think about right now, and there was a story in BuzzFeed this morning about like parents getting arrested at a public hearing over critical race theory. Um, it just seems like that scene in Field of dreams where Annie has to yell at, you know, at least I'm not a book burner, you Nazi cow. Like that, it's devolving into that kind of conversation. And sadly, I think we're just going to see more of this as the you know, media machine on the right starts moving to try to erase these conversations and the teaching of this history from public schools that have a duty to teach it. At least the Nazi cow and feel the dreams did the reading, it sounds like. I think she actually read the boat rocker. <laughs> In all fairness to the Nazi cow, I mean, that's, 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 this is where we are. That, this is, is this our show title, In All Fairness to the Nazi Cow? No. But I'm just saying, like, this is so much, this makes that look reasonable it does. bad and stupid. It but it's like, she read the book, she knew it was in it. It's stupid and bad, and I agree with Amy Madigan, but, like, compared to this, she looks like a scholar. It's true. Always agree with Amy Madigan. Um, okay, let's move to crying in H Mart. So what we're going to do is talk. Let's talk overview context, and then I'm going to play a little excerpt, and then we'll do spoiler talk for a few minutes in a minute. So how's that order that sound? Sounds good Rebecca? to me. We haven't really planned this out. Crying in H Mart. Why did we pick this book? We were trying to pick one of the like quote unquote big books of the spring yep. so far of the year so far, and I think we were both like, well, we've done a lot of fiction. <laughs> this year and that's been great but also it's hard to find other fiction you want to do when you got to talk about clara and the sun (laughs) and i think this one was your idea and you're like this i'm seeing people talk about this and it does ring a lot of bells that we share um there's a theme of food running throughout it's a memoir that deals with complex family relationships and identity and all of those are hooks that we are happy to hang our hats on 
so that's how we that's how we arrived at that basically you said what do you think about crying in hmart i was like cool let's do it it took <laughs> my my incredible sophist powers really overcame a lot of uh resistance I on mean, that I, i'm such a hard sell most of the time i think time. it's having a bit of a moment in like the hipster reader section i mean Michelle Zahner mm-hmm. fronts a well-regarded independent rock band, right? So like, there's an indie rock, independent rock band. Uh, hello, fellow kids. Um, <laughs> and it, it had, the, the book started as, and the kernel of the book started as an essay in The New Yorker, which had a moment to. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it fits in with a lot of interesting questions and sensibilities that people have. It's also, to me, to look at like the um, genealogy of our picks to talk about, it's like, cross mm. somebody's daughter with eat a peach and you get crying in h yes. <laughs> I think that's right. uh, in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of ways so i think it's worth doing um i think it's very well written um there's a lot of technical mm-hmm. stuff i really like um she's best known now as the front woman for japanese breakfast but i don't think that's gonna last very long i think she's a writer rebecca shinsky yeah i think she's a i think she's, she's a, a writer girl. too it's Mm-hmm. I'm ready for whatever she writes next. This was the, uh, absorbing from the get-go. Yeah, so bef- oh, go ahead. And I would say it's like, it's so compelling and it's difficult. It does that thing where you're like, this is going to make me cry and I'm going to sit here for four hours anyway. Yeah, so let's do a little pitch for people who may not stick around past the excerpt when we talk about, you know, the substance of it. Because I, I think there are some, there's a couple of haymakers here that I don't want to spoil. That I think you need to have happen mm-hmm. in the course of the book that are, are meaningful and not just you know, telling plot points about Indiana Jones 5 or something like that. Um, it's a memoir about her, mostly about her mother's death, frankly, and that as a as a flashpoint for her to consider her own identity, her own upbringing, and her own history. And the, the titular crying in HMR, it starts in closer to the present after her mother has died, and she is talking about what it's like for her to go into HMR, which, for those of you who don't know, are these... Asian superstore food palace casino things. And that casino is gambling, but they're really enormous, impressive food hall, grocery store structures that exist in towns that have large Asian American communities. My understanding is that at its core, it's a Korean chain, but I might be wrong about that, but it incorporates a, a food from wider, I guess, especially East Asia. It's less uh, Southeast Asia. Um, or Indian subcontinent in Pakistan. Um, so really it's Korea, Japan, China. It sounds like there's some Vietnamese and Cambodian stuff there, but it's a place, especially in America, where people who either are foodies writ large or have family nostalgia for the food of their youth or their parents, or frankly, they just this is their cuisine and this is the best place for them to get groceries and supplies um, to make it. And... I think this place of displacement is going crying in H Mart um, is one of the more evocative titles once you've read the book about what it means. Mm-hmm. Like where and when this is happening and over what is super important. Um, and I think it's extremely well read. I think, well written. I think the best pieces to me, her description of H Mart as a communal space is wonderful. And that's in the first chapter. Yes. Um, and that's the, sec- the selection I'm going to play here in a minute. Um, and then bridges out, and the way that she details, I think, Zauner's attention to, catalog of, and care in detail, whether it's the food, the ingredients, um, her mother's beauty regimen, her mother's, mm-hmm. um, she, her mother's diagnosed with cancer and dies young, um, her specificity 
and thoroughness around her symptoms and care and medication is also, but her attention to the detail, the specific, is a thing I think sets it apart from a lot of memoirs, right? It really grounds it. Now, I think there are some secondary effects of that that I'm going to save for after the excerpt. It's not very long, 231 pages. It reads very quickly. Um, it is very sad. Very, very sad. There's trigger mm -hmm. warnings here for some abuse. Um, there's something else I had. There's a scene of violence where her boyfriend, now husband, is violently attacked. That's pretty gnarly. Mm -hmm. um, any other trigger warnings, Rebecca? It, it's sadder than it is triggery, I guess, on the whole, yeah. from my understanding of it. There's discussion of addiction. Her father uh, is That's a right. recovering yeah. at recovering addict, maybe at, at times yeah. on the page actively, uh, actively addicted. And we don't get a lot of that, but it's there are some examples given. So if that's a difficult thing for you to read about or listen to, um, take that in if you're going to pick up the whole book yeah. for sure. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a sponsor break excerpt her describe Michelle's description of H Mart. Um, it's not, it's not as long as the somebody's daughter excerpt. Um, and then Rebecca and I will spend a few minutes talking about the book writ large. Ever since my mom died, I cry in H Mart. H Mart is a supermarket chain that specializes in Asian food. The H stands for Hanadim, a Korean phrase that roughly translates to one arm full of groceries. H-Mart is where parachute kids flock to find the brand of instant noodles that reminds them of home. It's where Korean families buy rice cakes to make dakguk, the beef and rice cake soup that brings in the new year. It's the only place where you can find a giant vat of peeled garlic because it's the only place that truly understands how much garlic you'll need for the kind of food your people eat. H-Mart is freedom from the single-aisle ethnic section in regular grocery stores. They don't prop Goya beans next to bottles of sriracha here. Instead, you'll likely find me crying by the banchan refrigerators, remembering the taste of my mom's soy sauce eggs and cold radish soup, or in the freezer section, holding a stack of dumpling skins, thinking of all the hours that mom and I spent at the kitchen table folding minced pork and chives into the thin dough. Sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? Growing up in America with a Caucasian father and a Korean mother, I relied on my mom for access to our Korean heritage. While she never actually taught me how to cook, Korean people tend to disavow measurements and supply only cryptic instructions along the lines of, add sesame oil until it tastes like mom's. She did raise me with a distinctly Korean appetite. This meant a reverence for good food and a predisposition to emotional eating. We were particular about everything. Kimchi had to be perfectly sour, samgyeopsal perfectly crisped, stews had to be piping hot, or they might as well have been inedible. The concept of prepping meals for the week was a ludicrous affront to our lifestyle. We chased our cravings daily. If we wanted the kimchi stew for three weeks straight, we relished it until a new craving emerged. We ate in accordance with the seasons and holidays. When spring arrived, and the weather turned, we'd bring our camp stove outdoors and fry up strips of fresh pork belly on the deck. On my birthday, we ate miyokuk, a hearty seaweed soup full of nutrients that women are encouraged to eat postpartum and that Koreans traditionally eat on their birthdays to celebrate their mothers. 
Food was how my mother expressed her love. No matter how critical or cruel she could seem, constantly pushing me to meet her intractable expectations, I could always feel her affection radiating from the lunches she packed and the meals she prepared for me just the way I liked them. I can hardly speak Korean, but in H-Mart it feels like I'm fluent. I fondle the produce and say the words aloud, Tame melon, tanmuji. I fill my shopping cart with every snack that has glossy packaging, decorated with a familiar cartoon. I think about the time mom showed me how to fold the little plastic card that came inside bags of jollipong, how to use it as a spoon to shovel caramel puffed rice into my mouth, and how it inevitably fell down my shirt and spread all over the car. I remember the snacks mom told me she ate when she was a kid, and how I tried to imagine her at my age. I wanted to like all the things she did, to embody her completely. My grief comes in waves, and is usually triggered by something arbitrary. I can tell you with a straight face what it was like watching my mom's hair fall out in the bathtub, or about the five weeks I spent sleeping in hospitals. But catch me at H-Mart when some kid runs up double-fisting plastic sleeves of bungtigi, and I'll just lose it. Those little rice cake frisbees were my childhood, a happier time when mom was there, and we'd crunch away on the styrofoam-like discs after school, splitting them like packing peanuts that dissolved like sugar on our tongues. I'll cry when I see a Korean grandmother eating seafood noodles in the food court, discarding shrimp heads and mussel shells onto the lid of her daughter's tin rice bowl. Her gray hair frizzy, cheekbones protruding like the tops of two peaches, tattooed eyebrows rusting as the ink fades out. I'll wonder what my mom would have looked like in her 70s, if she'd have wound up with the same perm that every Korean grandma gets, as though it were a part of our race's evolution. I'll imagine our arms linked, her small frame leaning against mine as we take the escalator up to the food court. The two of us in all black, New York style, she'd say, her image of New York still rooted in the era of breakfast at Tiffany's. She would carry the quilted leather Chanel purse that she'd wanted her whole life, instead of the fake ones that she'd bought on the back streets of Itaewon. Her hands and face would be slightly sticky from QVC anti-aging creams. She'd wear some strange high-top sneaker wedges that I'd disagree with. Michelle, in Korea, every celebrity wears this one. She'd pluck the lint off my coat and pick on me. How my shoulders slumped, how I needed new shoes, how I should really start using that argan oil treatment she'd bought me, but we'd be together. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of anger. I'm angry at this old Korean woman I don't know, that she gets to live and my mother does not, like somehow this stranger's survival is at all related to my loss that someone my mother's age could still have a mother. Why is she here slurping up spicy jampong noodles and my mom isn't? Other people must feel this way. Life is unfair and sometimes it helps to irrationally blame someone for it. Sometimes my grief feels as though I've been left alone in a room with no doors. Every time I remember that my mother is dead, it feels like I'm colliding with a wall that won't give. There's no escape just a hard surface that I keep ramming into over and over, a reminder of the immutable reality that I will never see her again. All right, Rebecca. Um, I, I guess the thing that elevates this book for me, there's a critique of this book in me, let's say, that is... <laughs> I don't know how to put this, that's not dismissive because the pain is real and it's one of those... The cancer memoir, 
is a mm-hmm. genre, either by it a person is. or a family member. And been there, done that is too strong. But it's its own. It's a. It's it's its own thing, and so. I'm, that's that's it is this is more of a cancer book than I thought it was going to be to be quite honest with you I'm not sure what's what's your reaction to that or, or how are you surprised yeah, or otherwise was, you know characterize it it was more of a my mom is dead my mom was yeah. dying book than a than a foodie exploration or a look at food and culture than I was expecting um, and this is what happens sometimes because we both like to go into books yes. pretty blind to reviews of them um it was more of that, but I think that it avoids, for me, it avoids the this is one in the genre of cancer books critique because she does so much with identity that her mom's death isn't just, it, this is not just, and I don't mean just mm-hmm. dismissively either, but this is not solely a book about my mom died of cancer and it was sad. And there is a way to do that book very well, but she's Korean American. Her mother is the Korean parent and she's Michelle Zahner is wrestling so much with what to make of her own identity as a Korean person and her connections to Korean culture when her most direct connection disappears or, or dies. And her mother was the one who cooked and her mother was the one who like used food as an expression of love. So how will she maintain her connection to that feeling of eating her mother's food if she can't make the the same things that her mother made her or or if she never learned because her mother never taught her and because in her mother's way of cooking they don't use recipes she just you know like pour pour the water in until it covers up your hand great detail um right yeah i i agree with what you said earlier that her attention to detail and the details that she chooses really make this book special in a way that would have made it an even harder book to read if it were a straight my mom had cancer memoir with all that detail and without the other peripheral questions, actually really central questions about identity and what she's trying to, I don't want to say achieve, but what she's trying to do in her care for her mother, both for her mom and for herself, because their relationship was so difficult and she has felt like a disappointment mm-hmm. and been overtly told that she was very difficult and disappointing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, I think at one point I was like, so is this just a podcast where we talk about books where people have hard relationships with their I mean, moms? What other kind now? of book is there? I guess um, at some level books and they have hard relationships with your fathers, fathers, which this sons, is also man. a book and actually <laughs> maybe more terrifying her relationship yeah. with her father and her, um, one of the revelations of the book is, that his her father has been having paid affairs for a long mm-hmm. time, um, but there's there's haymaker shot, and I don't wanna, I don't want to mention them all, but like yeah. notably her father is not mentioned in the acknowledgments, um, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who reads the book. Mm-hmm. But still, this is that piece is raw. The stuff about her mom is raw in some of the present tense narration of you know the immediate. Her, her pretty sudden sickness, it's a little hard to do time, but she gets sick pretty quick. By the time it finds out that she has, uh, it's a gastrointestinal cancer, there's not a, not as much of the book is actually that, thankfully. Not as many of the pages are devoted to that. A lot of that is sort of talking around the edges of what happened before, what happened after, and then kind of looking at it through fingers till you get you know pretty hairy stuff about her mother's physical decline. Mm-hmm. But it is not a... Um, chronicle of the the first X-ray 
to the last gasp. It is not that from start to finish. And the things on the periphery, I think I'm more interested in, and I don't know, maybe if it didn't have the the pathos of the middle, maybe Zahner never writes the book. You know, you don't know. But like, we only get a little bit of her story about becoming a successful front woman, having a successful band. I want that story next. I want her like, Mm -hmm. you know, recording piece as well. And I hope we get subsequent works from that. And I like so much what she was doing about her childhood as a Korean American living out on five acres. That's not just in Eugene, Oregon, which is a small college town that's about two hours south of here of Portland, but several miles outside of Eugene, right? Really on maybe a literal or physical island growing up and how she was dealing with that. And the two sides of her personality, or two of the major sides as she frames them, there's sort of the Korean food heritage side and her indie rocker teenage girl side that becomes an indie rocker woman side. And that's her, that's kind of how she frames her story of being mixed race. These are two things and they kind of go together. And ultimately she fuses them at the end, which I was like, how is the book going to end? Because her mother dies, they bury her. She takes what I would say is a tough hang trip with her father um, after, after the fact. But the ending sequence is her as a successful musician with her American band eating Korean food in Korea with her Korean cousin. If that's not a synthesis, I don't know what is. It feels like a moment of, I have found a way of not stitching together halves, not even calling them halves, but of integrating the various pieces of that makes me me. And I don't know if I would, you know, as I'm not, I don't want to second guess, but I wonder if in a future version or a different version, that's enough of a story um, to, to ground yeah, the whole I thing. Think- Integration is the same word that I was going to use for where she, the place that she arrives by the end. And I think that she doesn't hang a lantern on it, but the way that it made sense to me here is that she can, because of how her parents are and what the relationships there are, like, I mean, one of the haymakers in the book is her mother telling her that she had an abortion after Michelle was born, like in in the middle of a fight, like yelling at her that I had an abortion after you were born because I just like couldn't deal with another kid like you basically. And it is, it's a like gasp out loud, punch you in the stomach moment of reading. I cannot imagine what it felt like to hear it. And that's one of the, like the places that she backs off of detail are also really telling. Like we get, my mother said this to me and it just lands and we don't get the description of the emotional experience no. of that. And the same with that very tough hang trip that she takes with her dad. There's a lot of here is what happened and very little here is how I felt about it. And I think it's very consequential that her mom is out of the picture and her dad is much less involved in her life. We don't really know all the details at the end mm-hmm. of the book by the time that she becomes a successful musician who has, as you said, like been able to integrate both sides of her personality, like that I'm going to be a, I'm going to play in a band thing as part of originally it's part of this sort of classic response that she has to how strict her parents are and to the kinds of expectations that they put on her of like, it's kind of like F you, I'm going to move far away and I'm going to do exactly the things that you told me you were afraid I would do. You know, I'm going to live in a filthy tiny apartment with cockroaches crawling on the couch. And I'm going to play in a band, you know, and I think that her 
she had the experience, that severing of the relationships with her parents in those ways before those parts of her identity could really be her before the, oh, I actually do want to be a musician and this is what I'm doing. It's not just a reaction to my parents. And I do want to feel connected to my culture and to the food of my culture. And it's not just a way to try to make up something about my relationship with my mom. Um, I thought it was a really interesting contrast to Ashley yeah. Ford's book. And you know, and uh, if we hadn't just stumbled on reading them in the order that we had read them in, I'm not sure I would have been thinking about it that way. But there's so much, like Ashley does so much unearthing of what those relationships mean and where her parents were coming from and how she's understood it. And there's all this sort of, as we talked about, like therapy adjacent processing that happens on the pages of somebody's daughter. And there's there's not really no. any of that happening in, in Crying in H Mart. There's no like, my parents did this and it was abusive and I recognize it as a product of their own stuff. It's like, my parents did this. This was the way that my mom expressed her love to me and i don't i don't know if she would even label some of those things as abusive in the way that i certainly read them as being yeah i think and also maybe a a salient detail that exemplifies that that observation is a a narrated issuing of therapy in the book is in the text Mm -hmm. of there's not a lot of interior work happening here it is all externalized in the food making process of and the caring process people do not talk to each other in this book um and mm-hmm. michelle does not talk about not talking like ashley does right in that very in that that scene in that that chapter that we included in that chapter it's very much about finding alternate forms of communication because language and in my late capitalist 40-year-old dad mode of who i am is what I consider relationship building, you know, the talking, the how are you feeling, how am I mm-hmm. feeling with this, this, the one you do this, it makes me feel this way, and this converse, conversation back forth. But not only do they literally speak different languages, like the Conglish that the, Zauner is most fluent in is also not the thing her mother also knows. It's, it's, an inter, it's an intermediary step that where they're trying to figure out some way to communicate and say enough to have a relationship but they either don't know how or not interested in or don't even know is available that some other kind of relationship is possible out there to say you know when you comment on my body it makes me feel like this right. and i th- i don't know if you know you know that, that that very kind of basic stuff that you could almost role play they don't understand where each other are coming from and i'm not sure that they ever do except that at some point they jettison the desire to have, um, as Michelle calls it, a mommy mom. She jettisons a desire Mm -hmm. for a mom to be a mommy mom. And Michelle's mother jettisons her expectation that her daughter is going to be whatever her expectation was going to be. As you said, that moment where she comes to her um, cockroach-infested apartment doesn't comment, smiles all the way through, which is a revelation to Michelle and there is some sort of laying down of expectation on both sides that isn't part of the text. It just kind of happens. And I I don't know how, but I, I, is that kind of what you're talking about, I guess, in, in those moments? Yeah, yeah. There's there's also an alternate version of this book, as, we, as there was for somebody's daughter, where she's like, here's what my parents did to me and why I don't yes, talk to them right. anymore. But that's not the book. It's here is the story. And also, I've struggled so much to maintain these relationships and to try to make sense of them and to make sense of myself. And it's it is all everything is unspoken. Yeah. 
no, like nothing is processed out loud, but they do, you know, she understands what her mother is, that her mother is trying to express love when she, you know, tells her the exact right way to eat a particular thing. When some of us, like I'll speak for myself, would experience that as being, you know, very micromanaging. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but she's able to care rather than like, I don't love, that's yeah. not love to me. It's interest, care. There's a lot, she does a lot of nice writing. I should have written this down. Maybe you marked it of trying to describe that like, my mother's my mother was mo- more interested in me than anything else in the world right and yes. that's different than love and, as at least we understand yeah and there's a i don't remember what the things were in the passage but i did make a note that her mom expresses her care by paying attention to really subtle yeah. things that michelle likes and enjoys and it'll be like you, you know your favorite snack is always in the fridge or that that kind of thing. So she knows that her mom is paying attention to who she is and to the things that she likes and enjoys. And there are also all these painful things that happen in their relationship. But she has some, she sees some evidence that her mother cares right. for her. And she's trying to find a way into into that relationship or to, I think the way that you phrased it at some point they decide to lay things down even though they don't have any conversation right. about it but somehow privately they've gone off to their separate corners and each has decided how how can I be in this space in a way that feels better and they're sort of struggling through it stumbling through it um, but I found that to be I think it's really realistic it and that this happens very often that the relationships and families create pain and create discomfort. And we often arrive at the space of like, well, I can change my response and hopefully that will shift something here. Um, Maybe I'll just be different in this moment and we won't have to talk Mm -hmm. about it. Um, Which is, I don't think is a complete, it doesn't lead to complete healing. You know, you don't like finish the cycle of working through the thing, um, but it does go a, away towards having fewer right. painful interactions. And that to, those to me, those little moments were the answers to the question that the book poses like, but why? Like your mother is horrible to you in these other ways. Your father is horrible in, to you in these other ways. Why would you care so much? Why are you giving so much up? for them and then she answers that question with those tiny yeah. moments yeah I, I recommend it I think it's um, it can be made to a movie which I thought of, it's, it's always hard when you know something's going to be made into a movie or maybe a limited series I don't know um, to be what the highlights are going to be I think you're gonna, it's going to be a great starring role for a mid 50 Korean actress there's a lot there it's, mm-hmm. it's, she's a real character um, I think setting is going to be interesting. And then the, the food photography will be fantastic, right? Because there's these immaculate spreads and the, and everything else. And, and there's some real plot. Um, there's some real plotty kind of stuff that goes in it as well. But I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about it. Really glad we got a chance to read it. It's the kind of book that I could read versions of it. You know, you could you could mad lib it a little bit, like you switch out food for baseball. You switch out food for baseball and cancer for ghosts, and you've got Field of Dreams. So there you go. You know, you, <laughs> like these, all these, this the spinning molten core of I don't understand my parents. My parents don't understand me, and what are we going to do about it? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like it's like the Trojan War of emotion. There's there's stories to be told for all time about this sort of thing. It's true. Yeah. She. I also just want to mention before we end up. I I think she does some really wonderful writing about 
the tension of being a biracial person in America and balancing in her experience and from her mom, the standards of beauty yeah. that she learned about on both sides. What what did it mean to be a beautiful Korean person? What would it have meant to be perceived as white, even though she was only ever perceived as white when she wasn't in America? And she ha even has a moment with her mother where she says something like, you don't understand what it's like being the only Korean person at school. And her mom says, but you're, you're not American. Korean, you're American. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm both and you don't, <laughs> don't get, get it. it. Yeah. Um, but that that tension and that she never feels like she's wholly doing one thing because she is more than one thing. I think she writes about really, really beautifully. And yeah, I am very glad to have read it. I think I would have gotten to this one initially, like eventually, but it wasn't at the top of my urgency reading list. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that I got also, to it. if you ever find yourself in a pro in, in proximity to an H Mart and haven't been go, it's really cool. You learn something, see all kinds of interesting things maybe pick up a new cuisine or two, but um, a, a wonderful institution. And I'm glad there's a bunch of them around there um, to see. All right, Rebecca, thanks. Uh, we'll talk to you next Thank time. You.